look now at the conscience. We looked at the definition of the conscience. Um, we talked about considering things morally good or bad, commending the good and uh, avoiding the, the bad. This is uh, Vine's definition, and we're pretty much going to look at every scripture that's on here and every, every um, definition so that we'll get a biblical view of what the conscience is, not necessarily man's view. We then looked at a bunch of Old Testament scriptures. Anybody remember the interesting fact about the Old Testament and the conscience? The word conscience is not listed in the it's Old not, Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. The idea or the concept of a conscience isn't there. And that's because uh, the Greeks really came along later and started uh, that introspective kind of discussion. And uh, so without them having that knowledge of that, it wouldn't have made much sense for God to speak to them in those terms that they wouldn't have understood. Out of all these Old Testament scriptures, though, that we looked at, we, we see that there is discussion of your inward self, and, and we see that discusses the heart, the mind, or your inward thoughts. So there is information in there, um, and it's just, it's just not presented in terms of the conscience. We then uh, began a survey. So we're going through every scripture that we can find with the word conscience in it, consciousness in some cases. And uh, we looked at what we can draw from that so we can understand what this, what this thing is, how we use it, what it's good for, what it's not good for, um, all those sorts of things. So the first thing that we saw was we saw that um, it's going to take some work but we're going to need to keep our conscience blameless, pure, and clean. And we saw that in Acts 24, 14 through 16. And we saw that in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 19. We then uh, saw that our conscience can be evil, but we can also cleanse it from evil. And we saw that in Hebrews 10, verse 22, and in 1 Timothy uh, 1 and verse 5. Now the other thing we get, and we just kind of touched on this lightly, so we're going to start here. Um, the other thing we get from 1 Timothy 1.5, that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If you break that sentence down, it says the goal of our instruction is, and there's three things that are the goals. What are they? Pure heart. Pure heart. Good conscience. Sincere faith. So those are all things that come from instruction. So we learn from that that we also teach our conscience. We learn things to have a good conscience. <clears throat> and uh, there's two aspects of the conscience that we'll look at that, that kind of uh, solidifies that idea. We also saw that, um, well, let's see, that's, oh, that was from the previous one. We saw that faith and, and uh, a good conscience are linked together. All right, so we are at um, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 8 through 14. So we're going to pick up from here. We'll read through these, these scriptures and, and uh, pull out what we can from these uh, to learn about it. The first part of the scripture, Paul is talking about the Old Testament uh, system. And then he gets along into the New Testament system, and there's a contrast between the two. So, beginning in verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet, not yet been disclosed while the outer temple tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. 
Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they only they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Though the Old Testament was looking forward to this time of Reformation. Verse 11, when Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, now made of hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of, gold, of uh, goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So why did he enter this tabernacle? The same reason any old any priest enters a tabernacle. What is what is their main function? Offer. Offering sacrifices. In the Old Testament days, they offered the blood of bulls and goats, and it could not do what? Could not make you perfect in conscience. So it couldn't cleanse your conscience. It couldn't. It couldn't fix your conscience. It could cleanse. It says in uh, in verse 13 that it could cleanse your flesh, but it could not cleanse their conscience. And what was it not cleansing them from? From the dead works. So back in the Old Testament, they had all these things they were doing, and, and they would sin, and the, the blood bulls and goats couldn't cleanse them of those things. It couldn't remove those dead works. <clears throat> Vine says that uh, this teaches that sacrifices under the law could not so perfect a person that he could regard himself as free from guilt. So the guilt was still there in your conscience. And so the old law couldn't fix that. What did fix it? The blood of Christ. And we saw in a previous scripture that that was sprinkled on our hearts, right? And the blood of Christ will cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve God. So we get rid of the dead works, which are only holding us back. And we move forward into the, the works that allow us to be to live for Christ. <clears throat> so the dead works are things that, that cause us to die spiritually and have the guilt associated with it. And they're things that don't produce spiritual life. So with... With the blood of Christ, now we can cleanse our conscience. So, if we, if we haven't been Christians, the way we fix our dead conscience is to, is through the blood of Christ. So we, we contact that, as we'll see through baptism, and uh, that's a cleansing that we go through to um, fix that situation. So that's one way that we end up having a, a clean conscience. We start out with an evil one, and we need to make it clean, and we, and we see here that uh, we are to clean it. Okay, so let's move into Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Here he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I, wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So this really, it's contained mostly up here. What is, what is happening in this scripture? Got to kind of dig into some of these, especially with Paul. Paul is so intricate in his writings, the clauses and the subclauses and the and meanings. In the first chapter, he was listing all this list of the heinous sins, yes. very, uh, uh, you know, and people needed cleansing problems. Yes. Well, we do now. Yes. And so here, when we say he's trying to tell people, I'm telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. 
And in the Old Testament, how do you establish truth? At least two to three witnesses, right? And so there's someone here testifying. Who is it? Who's testifying? Your conscience. Your conscience is testifying. And it's testifying with someone else. Who is that? With me and the Holy Spirit. What do we have now? Three witnesses. And how do you establish truth? Three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. So how's he, how, how do they know he's telling the truth? Well, they look at those three witnesses. And how do they know truth is happening? Because all three witnesses will what? Agree. agree. If they don't agree, then what do you have? Not truth. So, he's not lying because his conscience testifies with him, which testifies with the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that work? I mean, it sounds really good, but how does it actually work? Well, we take the Holy Spirit, and where do we put it? We have to have the Holy Spirit in us, in us and we put, it, we put it in us as into our conscience. Mm -hmm. If it's in our conscience, then our conscience and the Holy Spirit now agree. Mm -hmm. Now, if it agrees with us, with me, then that says my actions, <clears throat> my thoughts, are in concert with my conscience, which is in concert with the Holy Spirit, which says I am true. So we got witnesses here. And so we can tell whether or not we're in truth or not by looking at our conscience. So our, not, our conscience will tell us, and it tells God whether we're doing the right thing or not. And so it's a testifier. It's a, it's a witness for us. Can it be a witness against us? Yes. Just as easily, yes, can it be a witness against us. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. Again, many clauses. So let's just strip some of these clauses out. So Paul's boasting about that he conducted himself in holiness and godly sincerity. He said, our proud confidence is this, or our boast is this. We are conducting ourselves in holiness and godly sincerity. And we have, that's how we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. And it's, uh, the, how does he know that? Because the testimony of his conscience is telling them that. <clears throat> um, his conscience is his witness to this, and it testifies that this is true. So Paul is saying that he remained true to his conscience. His, his confidence is that he's true to his conscience, and the conscience, his conscience is testifying that he did conduct himself with godly sincerity in the world towards them. And so um, that's how they know he's telling the truth. That's how he, they know that um, he is doing the right thing. So his confidence is testifying. And so his conscience is trained uh, towards holiness and godly security. And he was following that. And in following that, his conscience was clear. Conscience and was when clean. he tells them to follow him, People can tell if we are living with a clear conscience, and they could tell that Paul was. Uh -huh. He was he was proving it, but he also said in other places, "Live like I'm doing." Yes, and I think this whole idea of of the testimony, mm -hmm. um, we should view this, and this is why this helps us. We should view this as our our conduct and our conscience is telling people whether we're right or not, and that helps. 
And it, not only is it telling others, but it tells God whether we're right or not. And who else does it tell if we're right or not? Us. So it's really important. If our conscience is out of whack, we're in trouble. Because we don't have anything to, to stand on. We don't have any, any standard or any way to know um, where we're at at any given time. Alright, Romans chapter 2, verse 6. So here, I'm just going to hit the top part of this in, in a high level. So this is about rendering uh, to each person according to his deeds. You're going to get sow what you reap, basic, or reap what you sow, basically. And so out of this, you're going to have tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil. Who's included in that? Jews and Greeks. So is the decision about whether you're going to have tribulation and distress, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile? No. What's it about? Whether you do evil. Okay? You're going to have glory and honor and peace. To who? People who do good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this whole top section says there's no partiality with God. He's not looking at you and saying, you're a Jew, you're, you're a Greek, therefore you'll be considered good and you'll be considered evil. No. If you do evil, you'll be considered evil. If you do good, you'll be considered good. That's the only partiality there is with God. He doesn't care about your, your makeup, who you, where you're from. So let's look at verses 12 through 16 then with that as a context. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are alive themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. A lot of things said here. What does it mean to be outside the law, without the law? Does that mean that you have no law? Not really. You're not accepting the law. And, and for the Gentiles, were they subject they to the old law? They didn't have access to They didn't have access to it. It wasn't for them, was it? It was for the Jews. So they're outside of the law. They're without the law. That doesn't mean that they're without laws. They're just without that law. They're not subject to that law. So here we have these people who are outside of the law, and they'll perish outside of that law. Um, and all who, were, who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there's your standards. Now, it's not the hearers of the law who are just. So just because you heard it doesn't mean you're okay. So if you're a Jew and you had the law and you just heard it, you were still in trouble. But if you did it, okay, now you're in pretty good shape um, because under that law you'll be justified. Well, we kind of know there's an issue there, right? They didn't. And that's not Paul's point here, but... So now we come along and we say, well, how are the Gentiles going to be judged then? <clears throat> well, to judge, the Gentiles didn't have the law, so they were outside of it. It wasn't for them. But instinctively, they were doing the things of the law. And those things became a law to them. So now, they've been doing the law of Moses even though it's not for them. And he says, because of that, instinctively they've been doing that, and that's a law to them now. So now we look at verse 15. <clears throat> when we see them doing that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. So where would that be? 
or would that law be found if you were to dissect them in their conscience, right? So now their conscience is bearing witness with their thoughts. And what are their thoughts doing? Well, their thoughts are either good or bad. So when you take those two and one, you compare the two, uh, and you say, well, okay, they have the law of God written in their hearts. Now their conscience is, is, uh, has that. And now their thoughts are being compared to that. And alternately, they're either accusing them or they're defending them. And if they're doing the right thing or they're doing what the law says, then they're being uh, defended. And if they're doing what, not doing what the law says, then they're being accused. So what do we learn from this about our thoughts and our conscience? Are they the same thing? They're actually not. Even though we kind of see those as both inside of us, they're not the same thing. Conscience is a standard that we have within us. Our thoughts are happening over here. You know, we have the little, the little saint from the devil on our... <laughs> and that's really the idea of, a, of your conscience, right? And so we have this, uh, the, this conscience and, the, and these things are being compared. Our thoughts are being compared. Also, our actions are being compared to our conscience. And if they're not the same, then what have we done? We've sinned. We violated our conscience. And so um, our conscience then is either going to accuse us or it's going to defend us based on what we think and what we do. So in that, that's kind of where I've said that our conscience is kind of like our traffic cop. It's trying to catch us when we do something wrong, when we violate the, the law. So um, the conscience then acts as an inner voice to us to accuse us of doing wrong or defends us in doing right. Now, if that voice isn't very loud, is that a problem? Yeah, it can be. So part of our training of our conscience needs to make our voice of our conscience loud to where we can ignore it. When our conscience speaks up, we don't ignore our conscience. So what would a weak conscience be? A weak conscience might be one that doesn't speak very loud. It's not very strong in that weakened. One on this shoulder's loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so we don't we don't hear the voices very well. We don't listen very well. We don't we don't stick with what they say very well. We need to get better at that. When we train our conscience, that's part of it. It's part of that experience-based learning, where we learn how to do what's right and we learn not how to, or how to not do what's wrong. And we learn to listen to ourselves when those things happen. Eventually, we're trying to get to the point where our conscience is, is signaling us before things happen. Before we get involved, our conscience stands up and says, don't do this. And if we, do, if we can get to that point, we're now starting to catch ourselves a lot sooner before we actually do something wrong. It so, becomes automatic. Thing it becomes automatic, and it turns more into the habit mm -hmm. that we've been talking about, right? The um, the weak conscience could also be also the lack of knowledge too. Right? It is, and there's there's actually a second aspect, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit too, and that is the a weak conscience may actually not be one that's not very sensitive. It may actually be too sensitive. You may actually have certain things that you believe that are that are not true, but you think that because of of your man's reasoning that they must be true, and so you might be more sensitive than you ought to be. So, yeah, there's a big aspect of this where uh, truth is, is a heavy component of it. And Neil and I were talking just before the class about a scripture that, that talks about uh, 
that sort of thing. We're going to cover that in quite a bit of detail. Uh, you know, Dale, talking about uh, what Scott was saying too, James tells us is that we think something's wrong and do it anyway. For us, it's a it's sin. It's a sin. So, you know, if our conscience says that's wrong, but everybody's doing it, and so I'm going to do it anyhow. Maybe it wasn't wrong, but for us, it would be. It would be. And, and we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of those scriptures and, and get mm. deep into that. Okay, so you see how important our conscience is from this. When we talk about moral morality and right and wrong, if our conscience doesn't contain that, we're finding ourselves trying to make conscious decisions, uh, very overt decisions all the time. And that's hard because you've got to be really, really aware if your conscience is in the background policing you constantly and when you get to do start to do something that's wrong and your conscience catches you that's so much of an advantage for a Christian so when we talk about living practically that's a really important aspect of being living practically if you can train your conscience to the point where it ca catches you before you do these bad things you're gonna be so much better off and you'll be more in that mode of, of habit rather than conscious thought all right, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. For the law, since it only has a shadow, it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. So this isn't conscious, it's consciousness. That's the awareness we were talking about earlier. Um, what are we having an awareness of or a consciousness of? Sins. And why was that in that situation under the old law? Well, because they couldn't perfect those who draw near. The blood of bulls and goats, uh, the, the continual year-by-year -year sacrifices couldn't fix that. So. They would have been a, they could have ceased to offer those if they would have fixed the problem, but they didn't. So they had to continue to offer them because the worshippers, if they would have been truly cleansed, they wouldn't have had a consciousness of sin. So now when we look at it from that perspective, what did Jesus' sacrifice do for us in relationship to our conscience? It truly cleansed us. So now not only we don't have to have that awareness of all those sins, we can leave those behind and go forward. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. They had those that constant reminder every year of their sins. We don't have that. We have we have we can take those and eliminate them and get rid of them. What does that do for a conscience? Go ahead, Dennis ask. I was gonna say, but we still remember them. Still remember them but not as if they have a a drag on you, not as if they pull you down and, and uh, as if they ha have make a difference to you. You, you should remember them to what degree? To the degree you don't do them anymore, right? You well, want, yeah. You want to learn from you them. You still have guilt. You can. Um, but I shouldn't. Sometimes you, have conscious, sometimes you have consequences that don't go away. Sometimes you have guilt that doesn't go away. But guilt can be a bad situation, too, because guilt can drag you down, and it can slow you down and stop you. And so this cleansing would, would eliminate that guilt as well as as the sin itself. It's good to have a, a, a healthy set of guilt where you can remember the things you've done and not do them anymore, but don't let them drag you down. <clears throat> okay, um, 
So here we're, we're seeing that Jesus' sacrifice will, will cause us to be cleansed. And that, as kind of our discussion here, is if your conscience is cleansed to leave those things behind, you're now unburdened to move forward. And that's a tremendous load lifted, right? When you can leave those things behind and move forward without dragging them along with you, um, that's a huge benefit. That's the freedom we have. It's the freedom we have, yes. And so if we have cleansing of our sins along the way, even, even in baptism we, we have this cleansing, but we also have prayer to cleanse us, um, we can still leave even those more recent things behind us. And so we have a cleansing there that, that helps us to move forward unburdened instead of moving forward with a lot of burden. Um, we're still looking at the things that, that uh, let us know that we're doing good and that we're, we're uh, not doing evil. In this situation, Vine uh, says that that this is the sense of guilt, guilt uh, being guilty before God. From this, we see that the conscience made you feel guilty before God. Scott? Yeah, I think maybe the key is that, you know, I think kind of what was, what's being said is that because we're human, sometimes we do, we remember, we, 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 we maybe let this drag us down, but I think the power of what this is saying is that this, this can do this, this has the power that, that it can be left behind, whether how well we implement it, but yes. this has a power that the old law didn't have. So it, it has the ability to do it. And we'll have human frailties <clears throat> that we might still recall things or feel bad about them, but if we'll let it, this has the power to keep and, it in the back. There's a place where this power works perfectly, not in us, but with God. Now, he doesn't remember these anymore. That's that's where we would like to get to, and as you say, we may not get there. But if we can get there, we, we leave so much burden behind us. But God can get there. God can uh, remember our sins no more. And so that's a good place that we want to be. All right, so our goal should be that we want to be able to live so that we have a good conscience. That should be a goal. <clears throat> We'll find that that's a, it's, it's actually a, how many of you bowl? Have you ever bowled? <laughs> how do the professional bowlers do it? Do the professional bowlers look at the pins down there and throw the ball at the pins? No. They got little spots, don't they? They start on this spot, they let, uh, let the ball off at that spot, they want to hit that spot right there with the ball. What does that do for you? Well, I don't have to predict where it's going to be down there because I know if I hit that spot, that's where it will be. It's going to be a strike. So if I can have something I can see a little bit closer to me, where I don't have to, um, I don't have to look all that way down there, then that would be a benefit to me. So um, let's look at this scripture then. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name, and do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So this is a little bit different in the way he presents this. So what he's saying here is you need to offer sacrifices. 
And the sacrifices you're going to offer are uh, praise to God, thanks to God, doing good, sharing, submitting to your leaders, and pray for, praying for Paul and those who are with him. So all these things are sacrifices in here. Right in the middle of this, he says, we are sure that we have a good conscience. Well, he said, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. Why would you need to pray someone who is really confident they have a good conscience? It seems like a strange request. You know what, Paul had to work, to, and he said he did, to have a good <clears throat> conscience throughout his life. Mm -hmm. We must remember that, mm -hmm. that we have to continue to want to have a good conscience and to, if, if we start going a little off straight, ask somebody to pray for it. Yeah, and that's exactly what he's saying. He says, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all mm -hmm. things. What is that? That's motivation, right? Mm -hmm. I am motivated to conduct myself honorably in all things. And when I do that, what, do I, what am I going to have? A good conscience. So, so his desire to do this tells him that he has a, he's going to have a good conscience. He recognizes too that he's going to have struggles where yes. he's going to... And he's not looking all the way to the end, right? He's looking at kind of an intermediate point. I'm just going to make sure that I want to live honorably. I'm not going to worry about, you know, uh, looking at my conscience every day and figuring out what I did and didn't do. I'm going to desi I desire to conduct myself in an honorable way. I want to have a good conscience. So I'm going to focus on doing the things to have a good conscience, and that's going to make me a good Christian. That's going to make me acceptable in the Day of Judgment. So I don't have to look at all the things I need to do to get to the Day of Judgment. I'm going to focus on making sure I don't violate my conscience. And if I can do that, and I train my conscience correctly, and I don't violate it, then I'm in going to be in pretty good shape. So that's that kind of dot out there. I don't have to look all the way to the end. I'm just going to look at some some more close-in points where let's just focus on keeping our conscience clean. If we can do that, then we're, we're going to be able to overcome a lot of things. And if we do that, we go back to verse 17. It makes your guys easier. It makes everything go better, doesn't it? It does, but our leaders, you know, I, I like that verse 17. Yeah. Uh, and it it is our job to work at having a good conscience so our leaders yes. will, it will be a joy for them and not a burden. Yeah, because this means you'll police yourself. Mm -hmm. And those who can't will be in the minority. If you don't do this, then and the <clears throat> majority become those who need help, then the elders' job is going to be a lot harder. But if the majority of the congregation is in a mode of kind of that habit, habit formed uh, lifestyle, it's going to be so much easier on everybody, uh, including the leaders. Okay. Uh, so there's a motivation there, there's a, a focus that it gives us. So the pursuit of a good conscience guides us to do right things. So here uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Deacons likewise be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, not fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Well, what's he talking about with that? Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Why is that qualification of a deacon? What does that say the deacon's going to do? So what is the mystery? Mystery of the faith. Okay, the gospel, really, right? The whole, the whole Bible. So, holding to God's word, 
with a clear conscience, why will that make you put you in good shape? Because if you can maintain a good conscience, what's that say about you? You never violated it. So that's kind of that intermediate point again. Let's make sure we have a good conscience, and that will allow us to know that we're holding faith, holding to the mystery of the faith. It will help us to know that we're doing the right thing. And you prefaced this way early in the class of, that's really important that your conscience is trained right, otherwise this isn't going to work. But this is important that we live in a way that we try to keep our conscience clean, and if we do that, it will force us to do the right things, because if we about to violate our conscience and our conscience is properly trained, we won't do that. And then we'll live the way we ought to. Okay, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Oops, I think that was on this previous. Yeah, 1 through 3. So this is the introduction to First Timothy, or 2 Timothy, where Paul's introducing himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I served with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So this is Paul. And he said, I served with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Um, so Paul is saying that's, that was one of the ways he lived. He just focused on keeping a clear conscience. That was one of the things that he did. And in doing that, then that would cause him to, um, to do the things God wanted him to do and not violate those things. Um, we're going to see this isn't enough always, especially if your conscience isn't trained right. Um, and Paul's going to be the perfect example of that too. Second uh, Peter chapter 2. Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Is that easy? No. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows and suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do that what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So bearing up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, that's tough. But why are you doing it here, according to this verse? For the sake of conscience. For the sake of conscience. That's, that's for, so that you keep your conscience clear, pure. If you violate your conscience, is that good? We're going to see that's a terrible situation. So for the sake of your conscience, Bear up under it, because that's going to be important. Bear up under it for the sake of your conscience, to keep your conscience pure. So if you're living in a way to keep your conscience clear, then that will help you to, to uh, endure certain things that are really hard to endure. So that's a motivation. There's a motivation in this to, uh, to watch your conscience and try, try to have a clear conscience before God. Okay, so we're on first Peter two. All right, we'll pick up uh, right here again, and uh, we'll go from here. Thank you for your comments.